I'd like to welcome you again to the service this evening. If you're visiting with us, especially want to say how much we appreciate you being here. If you were here last night, you know that I was not. And I want to start off tonight by apologizing for not being able to make it last night. Uh, we've really been looking forward to the time being able to spend with y'all this weekend and sure hated to have to cut that uh, by a day. So my apologies for not being here, but I heard Brother Marlin filled in uh, spectacularly. So hopefully tonight we can pick up uh, with talking about a case for the inspiration of the scriptures. And I, as we begin, I want to kind of explain where I want to go with this series, with this topic. Uh, there's a lot of directions that you can go in talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures and how do we prove those things? How do we prove that the, the Bible really is inspired by God, that it wasn't just written by mere men? How do we know that? How can we prove that? Well, there's one fun, fundamental Christian principle that is always going to remain the same, and that's faith. And I want us to remember that as we go. And we're going to talk a little bit about that toward the end of the meeting. But faith has always got to be there. Faith is something, though, that I think can be strengthened by knowing or finding the information that supports what that faith is based on. In other words, I have faith that God inspired those men to write the Scriptures. But it's not simply a blind faith. I'm not going to reject all evidence, all knowledge, and just say, I'm going to believe that regardless. Our faith doesn't have to be a blind faith. Because if God really did inspire those men to write the Scriptures, then I believe the evidence will back it up. And I want us to look this week at some of those evidences and how those things can be shown to be, uh, to be true and that our faith is founded in truth. I want to start this evening by reading 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. I've entitled the lesson uh, tonight, The Reliability of Scripture. And each night I'm going to take a different aspect of of proving uh, the inspiration. Maybe a different argument that a Bible skeptic might present to you in a way in which we can answer that. One of those arguments that's made sometimes is that the Scriptures aren't reliable. That we have no way of knowing that they're, if they're accurate or not. We have no way of knowing if the Scriptures that we have really are the same thing that the men originally wrote. That's what we're going to deal with tonight. I want to start though with 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation... For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's what the Scriptures teaches. That no prophecy, no teaching of the old time came by the will of man, but they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And I believe that. But, how do we know? Well, first off, let's start in talking about what the Bible is. Just so we all start on the same foundation. What exactly is the Bible as we're talking about it? Well, the Bible is not actually one book. The Bible is 66 different books put all together under one binder, one cover that we call the Holy Bible. There are 39 uh, books there in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. You have uh, some different genres you can break them down in. You can break them down however you want to, but I just want to give you kind of a general idea. First five books of the Bible are the books of Moses. Moses wrote them. They're sometimes called the books of history, or not the books of history, that's the next section. But the books of Moses, it details a lot of history there at the beginning of creation and so forth. But then you have books of history that detail kind of the children of Israel, what they do. Uh, you have books of poetry, think Psalms, Proverbs, you have about five of those. 
You have five books. We call them the major prophets. That's just the bigger uh, sized books is the only reason why they're called major prophets. And then the minor prophets are just the smaller sized books. There's 12 of those. That's the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's your four Gospels. You have one book called the Acts of the Apostles, and it's a history or a chronicle of the early church, the early Christians and what they did. Then you have several letters or epistles uh, that are sent to a different congregations or to different individuals in the first century. You have the letters of Paul, which are about 13 books, and you have uh, the other letters or epistles, which represent about nine books. And that is what we call the Bible. Now, I realize that's a very basic sketch of it, but we need to have that understanding that it's not one book written by one person, but it's 66 books written by a lot of different authors. Yet, behind all of those authors, I believe is one single divine author, and we'll talk about that. I want you to consider that this Bible, these 66 books, were written by about 40 different authors from various walks of life in about three different languages. So it's representative of a large time span. It's representative of three different languages, the two biggest being Hebrew and being Greek. Hebrew generally represents the Old Testament, which you'll find, and Greek is generally what the New Testament was written in. But there are some verses in the Old Testament that were written in Aramaic. So three languages are represented originally uh, in the text. Think about some of the different authors, though. Moses was a prince of Egypt, as you might recall, raised in the house of Pharaoh. And then Moses would, of course, go on to lead the children of Israel and do different things. But he was a prince. King David was a king. Amos was a shepherd. Isaiah was a prophet. Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a doctor. Peter was a fisherman. And all of these men wrote in what we know of and uh, and call the Bible or the Scriptures. Various walks of life, different people coming from different backgrounds. They wrote in different places in the earth. Three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Moses wrote a lot there in the desert of Sinai, it's believed. Daniel wrote in Babylon while they were exiled there. Ezra wrote in the ruined city of Jerusalem. Paul wrote some of his letters from a prison cell in Rome, and so on and so forth. Different people different times, different places, and different purposes. Isaiah wrote to warn Israel of God's judgment that would come upon them. Zechariah wrote to encourage Israel, uh, who had just returned from Babylonian exile. Luke wrote to prove that Jesus was the Christ. He also wrote the book of Acts that chronicles the early church in that first century. And then Paul in the New Testament writes to different congregations, encouraging them in many different things. And with all of that in mind, all of the different writers, all of the different purposes, all of the different uh, time frames and languages, the Bible claims to be inspired by one, God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The words inspiration of God means divinely breathed. And that's what the Scriptures claim to be. Paul even says this about the New Testament. In Galatians 1, 11 and 12, he says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So not only is the Old Testament, which is probably what's being referred to in 2 Timothy three sixteen, claiming to be inspired, but the New Testament is as well. Paul says, the things that I write, the gospel that I'm presenting, that I'm teaching, that I'm writing... I didn't get it from any man. I got it by the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. 
So all of these different authors, all of the time frames, all of the different places, all of that coming together into one book that claims that God is behind it all. How do we know that that claim is true? Tonight, I want to look at some manuscript evidence with you and a history of the translations that we use because I think if we look at the evidence that we have in those ancient manuscripts that have been discovered, in knowing the history behind the Bible and how it is that we got the book that's sitting there in the pew in front of you, I think it will give us a good, clear understanding and a faith-building message to know that what we have is historically accurate and reliable. The argument of the Bible critic sometimes is this. You may have heard something along these lines. The Bible's been translated and recopied so many times, etc., etc. How can we know it's trustworthy? How can we know it's even the same? How can we know it's not been corrupted through years and years of translations and copies and all of that? How do we know we even have the real scriptures? There was a debate about a year ago. uh, You may have seen or you may have heard about this between two gentlemen, Ken Ham and Bill Nye. Ken Ham was taking the Christian creationist point of view. Bill Nye was taking the atheistic evolution uh, view, and they did a debate. In part of this debate, uh, Bill Nye said this uh, about uh, the scriptures and about the idea of after translation and after translation, things kind of going awry. And I want to read you the quote. He said, you give me verses as translated into English over what, 30 centuries? So that is not enough evidence for me. If you've ever played telephone, I did. I remember very well in kindergarten where you have a secret and you whisper it to the next person, to the next person, to the next person. Things often go wrong. And that's the argument that's presented sometimes by those that don't want to accept that the scriptures are truly inspired by God as they say, well, even if you want to claim that they are, it's been copied and copied and copied and translated and translated. And we don't even know if the end result of what we have is what, if, is what it started as. You've ever played that game of telephone. You know what he's talking about, right, as a kid, where you whisper something and it goes around in a circle to kid, to kid, to kid. By the end of it, it's something totally different. That's the illustration he's drawing. That the Bible that we have today is like the end result of the game of telephone. You can't trust what it is that we have because you don't know if we really have what was there at the beginning. Well, I think we can challenge that. So I want to start at the beginning, and let's think about what these authors would have written on to begin. Uh, There are essentially two methods that these guys would have written on. When Paul was there writing his letter to Timothy or writing his letter to the Corinthians, etc., he's going to use one of two things. Either a scroll of parchment, and parchment was animal skin, essentially, that had been laid out to dry, and that was used as a form of writing. Also, there is papyrus scroll. Papyrus comes from a plant, and it was just another way of having a writing material. You'll remember in 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, Paul was writing to the young evangelist Timothy, and he said, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchment. So even within Scripture, we have record of Paul requesting Timothy to bring some of those parchments. Very likely could have been blank parchments for Paul to be able to then write write on and send out. So these are the materials they would have used to write. After they wrote those things, it would be copied and copied and copied. Now, I want us to remember, this is contrary to our 21st century thinking, but they were hand copied over and over and over. There wouldn't be printing presses for 1,500 years after the New Testament writers wrote. 
And so these were hand copied time and time and time again. Generally, uh, not always, uh, any other educated person that could have uh, read and write could have translated or copied a version, but many times it was left up to the scribes uh, to, to copy and, uh, those things over and over. The scribes were a group of people dedicated to doing that. Uh, Dr. Brennan Breed, uh, assistant professor at Columbia Theological Seminary, says this about the scribes. He says, At the time when the biblical books were written and copied, scribes did the work of composing and preserving important documents. Scribes were special because they could read and write. Literacy was not widespread. Okay, so we have to understand that there were only a few people, you know, in, re- in relativity to the, to the whole population that could even read and write. So these group of people dedicated their lives to copying and to copying well. I don't want to go into a lot of details, but they had sort of a professional ethic, if you will, as far as approaching the copying of Scripture. They read it. They said it out loud. They copied it. They had certain things they had to do over and over to make sure that they got it right. And for the most part, they did a very good job. There are over 24,000 partial or full manuscripts, Greek man, or manuscripts rather, of the New Testament. That includes Greek. That also includes Latin. There's a whole lot more Latin ones, but obviously recognize it was written in Greek. A Latin manuscript is one that's been translated into another language. Okay, but 24,000 manuscripts represented of the New Testament. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts that we have today. Ancient documents, that's all the manuscript is. An ancient document in the original language of Greek of the New Testament. Over 5,000. Now just to put that into perspective, compared to other ancient literature that exists, that is a wealth, a wealth of knowledge. And I know you're probably not going to be able to read the names, but that bar across the top is the number of copies that's between 5,000 and 5,500 manuscript copies in the New Testament. Versus you have some things like Homer's The Iliad, right? Classic uh, work of ancient literature. Only a little over 500 manuscripts there. You have writings of Aristotle, of the Roman historian Tacitus and others with very, very few manuscripts remaining. And nobody challenges what those authors say. Now granted, those authors aren't claiming to be divinely inspired. There's a difference. But... but Looking at those authors and then looking at the amount of evidence we have in ancient documents of the New Testament, it's astounding. There's a lot to draw on. So when a a translator, even a, a recent century translator, says, I want to create a translation of the Scriptures, they have an immense amount of of knowledge, of manuscripts, of physical evidence to draw on when translating that. They're not trusting one copy. You know, it's not as if we have one copy of the New Testament that we're basing everything on. No, there's thousands of copies that we can get the true meaning of Scripture from. You may also not be able to read the names there, but look at the bar on the top, that small little tiny bar. That bar is representative of the original date of writing and the first manuscript copy that we have. Unfortunately, we have no original copies of any of the Old Testament or New Testament books. That means the actual letter that Paul wrote, we don't have it. Don't have any originals. But we have documents within 50 to 100 years of the original. Documents that were dated, that were copied, within 50 to 100 years of the original 
writing. Some of those others we mentioned, Homer's the Iliad, the earliest manuscript we have is a 500-year-old copy. 500 years after he actually wrote it. That's the earliest version that we have to go on. Some of those others, Aristotle, Tacitus, goes into the 800,000-year range. In other words, they wrote it 1,000 years before we even have a copy of it. So that's a long period of time that something could have happened. It's a long period of time that the translation could have got messed up. 50 to 100 years between the time of the New Testament writers and the first New Testament manuscripts that we have. It's a small period of time. Small period of time. If something was going to get messed up in translation and messed up in the copying, generally it's not going to happen that widespread that fast. It's going to take hundreds of years for something like that to happen. I want to talk about some specific discoveries with you that I think you'll find interesting. These things are faith-affirming. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were documents that were found in 1946 in some caves called the Qumran Caves uh, near Israel in the general vicinity there. Uh, There were thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts dated to between 300 and 100 B.C. Now recognize that's... 100 to 300 years before Jesus Christ ever walked to the earth. That's how old these documents are. What essentially has happened, or what they think happened, was there was an army coming toward this area, and there was a group called the Essenes here. There was a group of of, of men, uh, very studied men, if you will, uh, that had a lot of those those ancient documents there that fled the scene as an army was coming. And they put those things in the caves and never returned. So here we are 2,000 years later and some men wander into this cave and lo and behold, they find thousands and thousands of, of fragments of, of manuscripts. There were 981 manuscripts represented. But that's full, that's partial, that's fragmentary pieces. So there were literally thousands of pieces that they're having to put together. But 981 manuscripts represented. About 225 of those are copies of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, so a good portion of them. Uh, They had a lot of other ancient literature too, aside from scripture there at that location. Every book except the book of Esther was found represented within these documents. Every book except the book of Esther. That's pretty impressive. Every one but one in the Old Testament. Before this discovery, the earliest known Hebrew manuscript was dated about 900 A.D., In other words, before this discovery, we were relying on a 900 A.D. copy of the Hebrew. Now, we had other translations. We had the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. We had some other things. But the earliest Hebrew manuscripts, 900 A.D., we gained a thousand years with this discovery, or over a thousand years. And so, in other words, you take it from 900 A.D. all the way to to 300 to 100 B.C., The prophet Isaiah, for instance, wrote in about 700 B.C. Suddenly, you've got a copy of Isaiah that's within only about four or 500 years of the original versus 1,500. And that's a big difference. Because if you look at the one we were using that's 1,500 years removed, and then you look at the one that's only 500 years removed, guess what you can do? You can compare them. You can say, has it been messed up? Have have a bunch of errors come into it. A thousand years difference. Has it been messed up? You know what they found? It hasn't. For the vast majority of the time, and in the cases, it hasn't. I'm going to talk about uh, some of the the textual mistakes and variants that exist in just a moment. 
This is one scroll that was found there in the Qumran caves. And it's the Isaiah scroll. Literally contains almost the entire book of Isaiah in that one scroll. And that's why this was such an important find. Because they had almost the entire book to compare and make sure that the message was the same. And it was the same. And that's faith affirming. There's a man, Dr. Peter Flint, a professor of religious studies. He's... uh, majorly into the Dead Sea Scrolls, holds the Canada Research Chair in Dead Sea Scrolls Studies. Bible Study Magazine asked him, above all, what do you want people to understand about the Great Isaiah Scroll? He said, the Great Isaiah Scroll and all the Dead Sea Scrolls are faith-affirming, life-giving, and historically accurate. And that's a man who spent his life studying (coughs) those documents. He says they're faith-affirming, they're life-giving, they're historically accurate. And you and I can take confidence and can take comfort in recognizing that these ancient documents and manuscripts that are being discovered and have been discovered only confirm that what we have is reliable and accurate. What about some New Testament documents? There was a small fragment that's been named the John Rylands fragment that was found. This is the earliest manuscript of the Old or the New Testament that we have. Now this is a very tiny fragment. For comparison purposes of, of, of looking at the text, this doesn't do a whole lot for you because it's only about six verses uh, with about four on the front and two on the back. But comes from John the 18th chapter. It's interesting and worth noting because it is the earliest copy we have. It is dated to about 125 A.D. Now, John, there's some debate about exactly when he wrote, but regardless, I don't want to get into that. He wrote somewhere between 50 and 100 A.D. And regardless of whenever he wrote, you've got a copy, a small copy, but you've still got a copy of John's book that's within 25 to 75 years of the original. And that is impressive to me that we would even have that. But you go a little further into the future and you have a whole lot lot more manuscripts with a whole lot left. The Bodmer Manuscripts. These manuscripts were collected by a man named Martin Bodmer in the 1950s. They contain late 2nd century copies of portions of Luke and John and a nearly complete copy of the book of John. Late 2nd century is about 100 years removed from when John would have written the book. So within 100 years, you've got nearly the entire book to rely on uh, for translation and for copying. And you've got 2nd and 3rd century copies of all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the general epistles, Philemon, the Peters, etc. The Chester Beatty Manuscripts, a collection of manuscripts acquired by a man named Alfred Chester Beatty. In the late 2nd century, there are copies, or there are copies of late 2nd century Paul's letters. Most of Paul's letters actually bound together. And that was interesting to me to find, because at this point in history, they weren't yet putting together the scriptures in book form. Uh, completely. But they obviously were doing that in some cases, at least with some of them. Uh, these were found with Paul's letters bound together in one form. Just interesting to me. Second century, within 100, 150 years of writing. Early third century copies of the four Gospels and the book of Acts. So recognize just between the Bodmer manuscripts and these manuscripts, you've got copies of all the Gospels that you can compare both. And see if they if say if they agree, and they're both within a hundred to two hundred years. Early third century copy of a portion of the book of Revelation, and then one more. Uh, these two represent the earliest book form manuscripts 
that we have. When they put together uh, these books, these 66 books, into what we would refer to as the Bible, they called them codexes back then. And these are the two oldest codexes that we have intact. The first is Codex Vaticanus. Uh, they found it near the Vatican. It was named after uh, the Vatican, right? So that's that's why it has that name there. Uh, copied between 325 to 350 A.D. So you're 300 years, a little less, 250 to 300 years after the New Testament writers. You've got the whole thing there in book form. Ancient manuscript, the whole thing. Plus the Old Testament there uh, as well. In that one particularly, you have the Old Testament You've got most of the New Testament. In the other one, the Codex Sinaiticus, copied around AD 350, you have most of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament there. And you'll recognize that if you put both of those together, you've got the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament 300 years after uh, the New Testament was written. And that's just impressing me. And that, that's just a few. We could go on and on and on and I could bore you and bore you and bore you with all of the different manuscripts that have been discovered. But all I want you to take away with, from that is this. We're not relying on one copy. We're not relying on one ancient document that we're drawing all of this faith and all of this lifestyle and all of this belief off of. There are hundreds, there are thousands of ancient manuscripts, of copies that the scholars have drawn on, that they have used to translate what we have in Scripture today. Draw some confidence in that. F.F. F. Bruce in the book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? said, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. No other ancient book, no other ancient document has the type of manuscript evidence that the Bible does. That in and of itself should tell you what we have is reliable and it's accurate. The other thing I want to look at, though, for a couple of minutes is the history of how we got our English translation because I think that that is very interesting but also think that it applies heavily to the argument that the Bible critic would give, that it's been translated into different languages so many times, right, and recopied and retranslated it, and that corrupts it. Is the English version of the Scripture that you have before you corrupted? Because, sure, maybe translating it from Greek to Greek, right, you're in the same language, Maybe nothing gets lost in translation, but maybe in English it does. So can we be confident in that? There are about 150,000 textual variants in all of the manuscripts of the New Testament. What that means is there's 150,000 things that don't agree in all of the manuscripts. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like very good evidence that they're reliable. There's 150,000 mistakes, right? But think about this. Many of those variants, those mistakes, if you will, involve simply a missing letter in a word, two words that have reversed the order but are still there, such as Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. That's considered a mistake or a variant because it's different in some manuscripts. Some involve the absence of one or more insignificant words. Scholars have determined that only about 50 of the variants, 50 of the 150,000 textual variants have any real significance. And even then, no doctrine of the Christian faith or moral commandment is affected by them. I want you to think about Acts 8 and verse 37 for a second. Acts 8 verse 37. Philip is sent by God to speak to the eunuch. You remember the story, right? He goes to the eunuch. He asks him if he understands what he's reading. The eunuch's reading out of the book of Isaiah. He says, how can I unless someone explain it to me, right? Philip preaches the gospel to him. 
Well, the eunuch recognizes his need to be baptized, and he looks and he says, well, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? And what does Philip tell him? He says, if you believe with all thine heart, thou mayest, right? What did the eunuch say? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? We have that within our King James, our New King James Bibles. In some manuscripts, though, that verse is not there. In some manuscripts, that verse is missing. And in some English translations, they have left that verse out. The English Standard Version leaves that verse out. Now, why? Well, I'm not going to tell you whether it should be or shouldn't be, but I want to explain a couple of things related to that. First of all, it's not missing in all of the manuscripts, okay? And we need to recognize that. It's only missing in a few of those manuscripts. But the reason why some people believe that verse was added later is because an earlier manuscript didn't have it. So if you have a later manuscript that has it and an earlier manuscript that doesn't, well, someone draws the easy conclusion, right? It's been added. It wasn't there in the earlier one. That makes kind of logical sense to us, right? I want us to think about something, though. You think about copies. We have no originals, right? We're going on essentially you know, 100 to 200 years later. You've got a lot of generations of handwritten copies. If you can tell the red, the little red squares there, I don't know if you can see that well or not, represent the ones that have a textual variant, have a word missing, or have a mistake that's, that's made. And it may only happen in one out of a lot. But then that one gets copied, right? And if those people that are copying it don't recognize or know the mistake, they're going to copy it exactly as it is. And then there's going to be several more copies with that mistake. And then it gets copied again, and there's going to be a lot more copies with that mistake, etc. Now, the point that I want to make with that is maybe the earlier manuscript that we have is one of those, is one of the ones that had a mistake. Maybe the earlier manuscript we had was one where someone accidentally left the verse out. And the older manuscript that we have was one that was still copied correctly. We don't know that. I don't know that. Maybe Acts 8 and 37 was added. Maybe it was. But let's think about if it was. Does that change anything related to our faith? Does that change anything related to what God asks us to do in salvation? Does it change the idea that we should confess Jesus Christ as our Lord? Is that the only place in the Scriptures that talks about confessing Jesus? Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Romans 10, 9 and 10. There's a lot of other places that talk about confessing Jesus. So I just want us to recognize, even if someone says, yeah, but there's mistakes and there's verses that have been added and all that... If Acts 8 and 37 was added, it doesn't change anything about faith, about salvation, or about anything important. And the other thing to recognize, though, is we don't know if it was added or not. We may have an earlier copy with a mistake in it. We just don't know. But you can look at all of the manuscripts as a whole, and 99.9% of it you can get pretty clear. The scholars agree. It's clear. It's accurate. It's reliable. There's just those few little things... They're not sure of, but none of them affect anything of significance. I want to give you another little thing to think about here. If you have a lot of manuscripts and they look something like this, if you can see the red, manuscript number one, there's a D left off in the word world, right? Okay, that's considered a textual variant. That's one of the 150,000. The second manuscript says it right. The third manuscript, instead of saying Jesus Christ, 
says Christ Jesus. That's considered a variant. The fourth manuscript says it right. The fifth manuscript says Jesus Christ is the saver of the whole world. Left out an eye there, right? If you had all five of those manuscripts, though, could you reconstruct what that verse was supposed to say? Sure you could. You could say, look, four out of the five say Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go with it says Jesus Christ. Not that it matters. It means the same thing. But four out of the five say Savior and not Saver. So I'm going to say, you know, it's saying Savior, right? And four out of the five say world and not world. So it's world. And that's the process whereby they come to the conclusions of what the text says. Is if there's a discrepancy, they compare all of the manuscripts, all of the documents. And they come to that sure conclusion. And they have. They've done that. D.A. Carson, a Greek scholar, said the purity of text is such, is such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variants. And I want you to have confidence in that. If somebody tells you or brings the argument to you that the Bible uh, translations and the copies, it's just like a game of telephone. It's been translated and copied so many times, we don't know what the beginning actually was. It's a different message. It's like playing the game of telephone. I want you to be confident and to know the textual evidence, the manuscript evidence, the reliability of translation is there. And then real quickly, I'm running out of time this evening. I don't want to keep you for much longer. But I want to give you just a brief sketch of the history of our translations. In 382, there was a man named Jerome who translated the Bible into Latin uh, for Pope Damasus. Uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. He created what would become known as the Latin Vulgate Bible. Now, this Latin Vulgate Bible, many people throughout the years uh, would come to believe was very corrupt and uh, used only to serve uh, man and not God. And I'll explain some of that as we go. But this uh, Latin Vulgate Bible, Jerome translated from the Hebrew and the Greek into Latin. By 600 AD, this was the only version allowed by the Roman Catholic Church. If anyone was caught with a translation that was not the Latin Vulgate, uh, they could be put to death for that. The priests of the Roman Catholic Church were the only ones educated to understand Latin. Therefore, people depended on them entirely for learning the Scriptures. And I want us to think about that. It's a different world than we live in. Everybody couldn't read and write. Most people couldn't. And most people, when it came to the Scriptures, since this Latin version was the only thing being able to be used, and they couldn't read and write, they depended upon those men entirely to know what the will of God was. Most of them couldn't own a translation at home. They couldn't read. There was no purpose. They went uh, to church, and they heard the Scriptures read and explained, and they had to totally rely on that. Now, that would be a scary world to me to live in. To have to totally depend upon the guy up there that he's telling the truth about what it says and not be able to verify. But that's the world that most people lived in between about 400 to 1400 A.D., what we would call the Dark and Middle Ages. It was during this time that many false practices began, such as the selling of indulgences and the ability to purchase salvation for a loved one. Those things aren't in Scripture anywhere. Selling of indulgences that you can pay a certain amount of money and you can sin. To cover that sin. That if a loved one has passed and you're afraid that uh, they're in purgatory, right? And then you pay enough money, you can get them out of it. Those are unscriptural things. But people didn't know. People couldn't read it for themselves. People depended entirely upon these men standing up there telling them. 
And that's why we call it the dark ages there. It was a terrible time as far as the scriptures go. Pope Leo X, I just want you to recognize the recognition that existed there of what the scriptures were being used for. He said in 1514 AD, How well we know what a profitable superstition this fable of Christ has been for us and our predecessors. There were men that, there were certainly some sincere men. I believe that. Even in in the corrupted system that existed, I believe there were some sincere men. But there were a lot of men that were corrupt and purposely corrupt in wanting to extort money out of people for their own gain because the people couldn't verify what it is they were being taught. Well, a man came on the scene named John Wycliffe. He had a problem with this. He was an Oxford professor, a scholar, a theologian. He opposed the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and was the first person to produce a handwritten copy of the Bible in English. He translated it out of the Latin Vulgate Bible that the church used. Infuriated by his teachings and his translation of the Bible into English, that 44 years after Wycliffe's death, he ordered his bones to be dug up, crushed, and scattered in the river. This was a big no-no to translate the scriptures into English. But Wycliffe wanted the common man to have a version they could read in their own language. When we say English, though, let's recognize we don't mean 21st century English. This is a portion of, of Wycliffe's Bible. If you can read that, that's Acts 2, 32 through 35. To me, it would read something like this. God reside this Jesu to whom we all been witnesses. Therefore, he was enhanced by the Rithund of God and Thorau the Byheast of the Holy Ghost that he took of the Fader. And I could keep going. But recognize it's different English. It's old, middle type English. English changes over time. As English changes, so does the translation of Scripture. And that's important even today. uh, Because some mindsets of people get stuck on on a certain translation. And all I want to do is have us recognize English changes. And because English changes, sometimes our translations need to change as well. We would not do very well having the Wycliffe Bible today. In 1455 A.D., you may remember in your history, the Gutenberg printing press was invented. Now, this was a big deal for the Bible because suddenly you could print copies of the Scripture and not just hand copy them over and over. Uh, The Latin Vulgate was the first Bible printed on that printing press. In 1516 A.D., a man named Erasmus created a Greek-Latin New Testament. What he wanted to do was he thought the Latin Vulgate was corrupt, and he wanted a new Latin version. So it wasn't English, but he wanted a new Latin version uncorrupted. So he used some manuscripts that he had acquired, and he created his own Latin version different from the Vulgate. That would be important because this man, William Tyndale, comes on the scene. William Tyndale wanted to give the people a translation, now that, of course, the printing press was there, that they could read in English, that could be copied and copied and copied quickly and distributed. He used Erasmus, Erasmus's source. So not the Latin Vulgate. He used Erasmus's new Latin source, and then he translated it into English. This English translation was the first to be printed on the printing press. Copies were distributed quickly, But because an English Bible in the hands of the common man would expose many of the false practices of the church at the time, they confiscated as many as they could, and owners were often put to death. Tyndale was hunted down for 11 years. He escaped capture, though, for 11 years, but finally he was caught. He was incarcerated for about a year and a half, and then strangled and burned at the stake 
1536 for translating the Bible into English. But he did that because he wanted people to be able to read Scripture for themselves. And his last words reportedly are, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Acts 2, 32-35, same verse we just had a moment ago. This is from the Tyndale New Testament. Recognize a little bit of the difference. This uh, it looks like an I, but it's a J. Jesus hath God raised vup, whereof we all are witnesses, since now that he by the right hand of God exalted is, and hath received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. You can see how it's a little easier to read 200 years later. English has changed, but it's still a lot outdated. In 1535, the Coverdale Bible uh, was printed. In 1539, the Great Bible was printed. The Great Bible was the first Bible that finally the church said, okay, we, we can use that English Bible in public format. In 1560, some folks got together. John Fox, you may remember the book Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Fox was one. Uh, Coverdale, who had printed a Bible in English, got together and created the Geneva Bible using Tyndale's translation. William Tyndale translate who had gave his life for the English translation. They used his for about 90% of the text. That Bible became very popular, was the choice of the common people for about 100 years. And then finally, the Roman Catholic Church came out with their own English Bible, the Dewey Reims Bible, which used the Latin Vulgate as the source. And they said, if, if English is going to be the way it goes, we're at least going to have our own version that we can use. And then in 1611, the King James Bible uh, was translated for the first time. Protestants went to King James I of England, uh, and they said, we want an English Bible that we can use. He put together about 50 scholars. They created this to be a translation to end all translations. It was called the Holy Bible at the beginning, not the King James Bible, interestingly enough. Uh, I didn't know that until looking into this and studying this a little bit. The Holy Bible is what it was called. They took into consideration a lot of those Bibles we've already talked about as sources. The original King James Bible was 16 inches tall. It was a pulpit Bible. It was chained to the pulpit uh, to use for public format. Uh, A year later or so, they would come out with some smaller individual versions that people could use. This would become the most printed book in the history of the world and the most popular English translation for hundreds of years. For the past 200 years, though, all King James Bibles published in America are actually the 1769 revision of the King James. And that's something that not everybody knows. Not everybody recognizes the King James Bible that we use is not the original 1611 King James Bible. It's the 1769 King James Bible, unless you have purchased specifically an original King James Bible. And here is out of the 1611 original King James, you can see the I that is the J now is still there. Uh, You can see the V. The V would become a U in the English language. Uh, Two Vs together, a double U. That's how we have a double U in our language together because two Vs put together that was called a U would become a double U. Uh, A U would become what we know of as a V. Confusing, but English has changed. Uh, It's a lot closer, but for Deid, you see the U should be a V. They switch. At some point in English history, they switch. Have a U there in David in verse 34. And heavens is the same thing. So the 1611 King James is not the Bible that we may use when we pick up a King James Version. Just wants to recognize that. And then lastly, 
you have some common recent translations. 1885, the English Revised Version came out. 1901, the American Standard Version. 1971, the New American Standard Bible came out. 1982, the New King James Version came out, published as a modern English version, but meant to maintain the original style of the King James that people had grown to love, the artistic, uh, poetic uh, type of, of wording that's used in the King James. It's beautiful to a lot of people. Now, there's a lot of other translations, obviously, but I just wanted to hit the majority there. And as we close this evening, what I want us to recognize from these things, the manuscript evidence is overwhelming much more than any other ancient document or ancient book. It's historically accurate. It's historically reliable. All of the scholars, all of the experts that have looked at it have come to those same conclusions. Any of the textual disagreements that exist, any of the textual disagreements that exist, none of them affect anything of faith, of salvation, of anything of true importance. And as we look at our translations... Recognize that people gave their lives to make sure that we had the Bible in English to read. Recognize that English changes over time. Just because it's a newer version doesn't make it a bad version. You need to go to the source. You need to go to the people that translated it. You need to look at motives behind. But there are a lot of good translations. There are some translations that if you and I were having a personal conversation, I would tell you, you know, I may not use that one. There's some translations that I would say that, but there's many translations that I'd say, you know, they had good intent. They were accurate in what they were doing. Sometimes they use different approaches. You've heard of the word for word or the phrase by phrase. Bibles use those different um, ideas. Uh, some want to, to translate it very specific, word by word. The New American Standard Version is considered probably the most accurate and reliable version, English version, word by word. But a lot of people don't like it because it doesn't read very well. It's kind of confusing because word for word in Greek doesn't necessarily work word for word in English. So there's other versions that take more of an idea of the phrase and put it together. Just recognize all those things come into play, but all of the evidence says it's accurate, it's reliable. Miller Burroughs, an American biblical scholar, leading authority in the Dead Sea Scrolls, said this, Interpretations depending on the exact words of a verse must be examined in the light of all we know about the history of the text. The essential truth and the will of God revealed in the Bible, however, have been preserved unchanged through all the vicissitudes in the transmission of the text. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Second Peter one twenty one. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And I believe that. And I believe the manuscript and translation evidence shows that and proves that what we have is the same thing they had and they originally wrote. We haven't talked a lot about salvation this evening, but I want to tell you that becoming a Christian and having the life of a Christian and a life following Jesus Christ is the most important decision that you can make. And if you're here this evening and you're not Uh, a, a child of God. You're not a member of Christ's body. You need to make the decision to do that. Jesus wants you to be a part of His family. And if you want to obey the gospel, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe what the Scriptures say, if you're willing to confess Him, willing to change your life, willing to obey in baptism, you can become a part of Christ's family tonight. If you're a Christian here and there's something that we can help you with, to pray for you, to pray with you, uh, in any case, in any situation, we want to help you this evening. If you'll come, sit on a front pew, 
So we stand and sing the invitation song.